Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm genuinely delighted to have Eloise Leeson, who is a linguist and communications consultant. Her consultancy is called OLIM, which comes from the Latin, which means shut up and listen. I had a less polite version, but uh, Eloise clearly is more politically amenable to the audience uh, that she's uh, focused on. Eloise, welcome. Thank you so much, Marcus. It's a delight to be here. Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background so that they've got an understanding of where you've come from and where you are? Absolutely. So born in England, raised in Scotland, which makes for a lot of linguistic confusion. I studied to fix that. I studied linguistics at the University of Aberdeen, whereupon I I worked for a couple of years leading seminars and workshops. Then I took a 90 degree right angle and went to Deliveroo and worked in the startup world and launched that into Scotland. Um, And then I bounced about advertising sales where I discovered I was truly awful at it, wound up being headhunted to a creative agency. And then I moved to Canada and founded my consultancy, Olim. And what we do is we close the gap between what people think they're saying and what is actually being received by their customers. Ah, (laughs) good Lord. There is um, a simple rule that the meaning of communication is the one received, not the one intended. And in writing, it's really important before you press send to make sure that you are clear about what the message is going to be received is going to feel like and sound like to the audience. So let's take a moment to dig into that. What are the most common mistakes people make when they're trying to communicate with their audience and they just go massively off target? I think there are a number of of crashing mistakes, and I'm not necessarily sure I can prioritize them. I think one of the first <laughs> one of the first concerns is not knowing why you're doing what you're doing. I think purposeless communication is a really great way to achieve a terrible result. So if you don't know why you're writing something or why you have a website or why you have a a mailer, you absolutely have to create some kind of purpose around it. You need to know why it is that you're doing what you're doing, because that will guide what you say to people. You know, if your website's there as an educational resource, fantastic. You can then discuss it as that educational resource in a way that helps people understand what it is and why it's going to benefit them. The other mistakes that I see made too often are thinking you know what the customer wants. So jumping to conclusions, assuming, especially in a sales context, we do so much customer research. We do so many creations of personas, of buyer personas. Yes, our assumptions is absolutely the way forward. And I heard the list of American that assume makes an ass out of you and me. And I think that's particularly accurate. But not knowing why your customer, why I wish to buy from you, what's going on in their head, not doing that research um, is, is just, uh, it's a recipe for disaster. So not knowing why you're doing what you're doing, not knowing what your customer wants from you. Absolutely. Yeah. Do your bloody research. It's really, really important. And I think that the other thing there is, is also thinking that you, you know that you're a good writer and not having someone to, to sort of sanity check. I refuse to use sense check because like, oh, I have to sense check this for me. It was jargon, which I Sorry, what sense check? Oh, sense, just sense check this for me. Just make sure it makes sense. Sanity check is better because I feel like, you know, if I really don't know what it is that I'm saying, I would love for you to confirm that this is making sense in the same way that it is in my head. So to me, there's definitely, there's a lot that goes wrong. I think that copywriters, of which I do a little bit, 
we often sort of flagellate ourselves for not being good enough writers. And then you send it to a client and the client assumes they're an incredible writer and it comes back and the whole thing's been destroyed. And then there's death by committee. Karen from finance has come in and shredded it. And it just, everything becomes too subjective. And I think one of the issues that I, I really have is that people don't do enough research. They don't do enough research into what's been effective previously and why, um, and how can we make it better in the future? And that lack of data, that lack of objectivity um, is actually where linguistics can come in and work really, really well for you. So in terms of a lot of the work that I do, a lot of the auditing work that's undertaken is focused around, are you saying what you think you're saying? Because all too often we have a narrative in our heads that says, oh yes, of course, my customers want to hear about what I have to say because that's what I've said for the last 25 years. And you've never actually taken the time to understand if that is actually the case. I just had a really interesting interview with my pal, Alan Sang, who's a very proficient negotiator. And the topic of the conversation was the difference between story and narrative. And I'd like to explore that in some detail in a moment. But before we do, can you explain to the audience what linguistics is? Because many people may not have an idea. Absolutely. So linguistics is the study of language rather than I am a linguist. I speak lots of languages, which I don't really. So linguistics is the study of language as an entity, how we use it in our daily lives, how we acquire language as children. It can cover everything from grammar syntax and semantics, morphology. So why are some words sticky and when some words not? You can look at things like sociolinguistics, how language interplays within society and a whole variety of other things. So I think the best way I heard it described was becoming more aware of, of linguistics in your daily life is like having a subconscious language toolkit that you use to make more, so you make it more conscious in your mind, which means that actually linguistics become quite crafty manipulators which is not always a good thing. That's generally reserved for the lawyer camp. But in terms of how we use language to leverage things in every day, we have a, a, a not a higher conscience, that's the wrong term, but a greater consciousness around the things that I say will make someone do something. So you have to be careful about using it ethically. As a minor example, if you and I were in the same room, Marcus, you know, COVID rules pending, social distancing in place. And I said, gosh, it's cold in here, isn't it? And there was the window open. You might get up to close the window. And that would be an example of if someone just said that off, you know, offbeat in a conversation, not aware of it, that would be probably quite innocent. Whereas if I'm saying it and I know that if you're going to, I can't be bothered to get up and close the window, but I say it to you just in passing conversation and you do something as a result of that, there is a degree of manipulation that goes on behind the scenes. So that's a very, very minor example. But it does go to show the influence that you can have on people. Um, and that's where things like neuro-linguistic programming come into play. And that can be a great area ethically and morally. So it's, it's a fascinating subject. And I could, I could bore everyone to tears. So I'm going to stop. I, I doubt that very much. But we will dig into some of this uh, as we go. So let's talk about what you mean by narrative and juxtapose it with story. So to me, a narrative is something that is, it is and it isn't time bound. So a story has a, a beginning, a middle and an end. It's, it's a finite entity. It starts and then it finishes. Um, unless, of course, you're talking never ending story, in which case that's annoying and no one wants to listen to you. But a narrative is actually something, the story that in my mind plays on repeat. So a narrative is something that will be consistently acted out because it's something that you've absorbed over time that you haven't questioned consciously. And this, I will come back to this conscious, subconscious theme, because it's really, really important in language. 
And a narrative is, and this may or may not be true of your friend, but you know, my understanding of it is that the narrative is something that loops. It's something that we enact time and time and time again. Um, and if we don't take steps to stop and address why we're doing that, you know, it can be very difficult to get ourselves out of that loop. Okay. I mean, when uh, I talked to Alan, he said that story has a timeline. There's beginning, a middle, and an end. But the narrative is the interpretation based on your history, your values, your expectations. And when you put yourself into that story, then two people listening to the same story may have wildly different interpretations. So again, I think what's really interesting, and it comes back to what you originally said, in terms of the sanity check, you need to make sure that the meaning that you are trying to convey is the one that the recipient will interpret from your communication. And this is tricky. Um, I'll I'll cite an example I'm not especially proud of. It was a clumsy piece of communication on my part. A chap contacted me because I said that I was looking for people for my clients. And I went back and I said, tell me why you're not a better salesman. He uh, responded with, well, why do you ask? And I said, well, generally, people who think they're the finished article are assholes. And so tell me why um, you're uh, not a better salesman. He took umbrage to this. Now, I understand why he might. It's easy to misinterpret that. But I was genuinely interested because what I'm looking for in salespeople is people who have the potential to grow. They have that growth mindset. They are self-aware. And it ended up not very pleasantly. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. And you know, I'm disappointed. I wrote and I apologized uh, unreservedly for the miscommunication. But I've fallen foul many times over email and my written communication because the meaning that I intended is not necessarily the one that it was read in. So what are your tips and advice to make sure that without losing the power of your communication, that the meaning you intended to convey is the one received? That is such a brilliant question. There's not really a short answer, but I think that the the first thing that you can do is to get clear on your own message and what it is that you want people to receive. So there's not necessarily any guarantee that what you write will be received in a particular way. This is because you can never know all of the connotations that the words that you're using will mean the same thing in someone else's head as they will in yours. But what we do need to focus on when we're writing um, is, is specificity. So if I am, you know, you, for example, going back to someone and saying, look, I think you're a bit of an asshole because typically people who think they're the dog's bollocks aren't. So the fact that you've assumed that you are indicates a couple of things to me that you're probably not what I'm looking for in terms of growth-focused sales mindset. You're not there looking at what can you do for the other person. There's not necessarily an integrity there in your sales. Now, those are all assumptions, again, that we're making on the back of that because someone who, in terms of, of you know the way they've presented themselves, has a connotation to you. People who generally do think they are amazing um, you know, and God's gift tend to not be. And that's been your experience. It might be totally different for that person. They may have had the privilege of meeting with a whole group of people who have been fantastic and known it. It depends. But the specificity of your message and the specificity of the person that you're, or the audience rather, that you're speaking to has to be considered. And I think this is when we, we're in an age now where so much of communication feels like it's going out into an echo chamber. And we've seen with things like cancel culture 
and with uh, social media's decidedly mob mentality, that there can be some real issues around having things deliberately misconstrued. So I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think we're quite afraid of criticism. When you want to communicate a message, I'm not going to come out with saying something like, just be true to you and everything will be fine. That's not the case. (laughs) What you need to be focused on is who am I? What value do I offer? What value does my business offer? Who is this relevant to? And why is it relevant to them? Then you work backwards. This is why we're relevant to you. This is how we're going to help you. This is who you are. This is the problem you have. This is how we help. And what you need to do is is change that perspective and focus instead on what are you going to get from engaging with me? And why am I worth your time? And all too often, the communications that we put out are, well, I just need to do a newsletter every week. Or I just need to do this because I'll be relevant, which is just, it's rubbish, Marcus. And, And what we need to do is focus instead on what value am I adding to that person at the end? And then it's not about having good intentions, as we all know, the road to hell is paved with them. But in terms of of offering something that is tangibly, genuinely beneficial, you can communicate that as long as you know what it is in as many different ways under the sun. And the people that you're speaking with, that will theoretically resonate with them. There will always be one or two outliers. But for me, it's specificity. It's getting really granular on why am I worth your time? How am I going to make your life better? Very interesting. Okay, so again. If we think about the research and the planning that needs to go up front before you turn into a keyboard warrior, what advice would you give in general terms about researching and planning so that when you do put finger to keyboard, the communication that you produce, at least in first draft, meets most of those criteria of who am I, what value do I offer, who do I offer value to, what value will you get from engaging me with me and how am I going to make your life better? So when it comes to research, I think the first thing that we all all too often forget is to talk to your customers. You know, talk to the people that you've spoken with previously, talk to the people that you want to engage with. Doing your research goes beyond making, you know, kind of educated guesses. So talk to your customer. It's one of those things that is such an easy win, but we're terrified because it makes us vulnerable. Because what if someone comes in with a a paradigm smashing piece of feedback that suddenly destroys all these carefully crafted castles in the the sky ideas we had about ourselves? So talk to your customers, create a survey, send it out. And if you don't have customers yet, talk to colleagues, talk to people that you admire in the industry that do something similar to you. I have found my entire business has been founded on being the weirdo that slides into people's direct messages and saying things like, hi, I've noticed you do X and Y. That looks fascinating. I recently made the leap to freelance. Could I pick your brains for 15 minutes or could I hear about how you got to where you're going? Because what you do looks really interesting. People love to help. Generally speaking, people love to help. So if you don't have customers yet that you can speak with, Go and ask one of your colleagues, go and ask a trusted, well, trusted, or go and ask someone on LinkedIn that you have a good rapport with, or go and look at surveys, go and look at sample information and qualitative and quantitative data. So getting that anecdotal feedback, really important. But if you can put metrics to numbers there, just so much better. Statistics are so persuasive because by and large, people do tend to believe them. You can obviously manipulate data. Data can obviously be shifted and changed depending on context. But that's when actually a linguistic principle called critical discourse analysis comes in. Really, really interesting piece there. And when we look at newspapers, and this is actually a really interesting exercise I would recommend any listeners um, would look at, is 
go and grab a newspaper and have a look at the some of the sweeping generalizations that will be passed off as fact. Now, I'm not bashing journalistic integrity here, but what I am saying is that we can leave a lot of subtle things to chance. So, for example, I didn't lecture in linguistics at the University of Aberdeen, and this is where this linguistic manipulation piece comes out. I didn't lecture in linguistics at the University of Aberdeen. What I led was a brilliant co-curricular project that focused on workshops, courses, and seminars that helped the student population to articulate their skills better. It's tied to linguistics, but it isn't an academic discipline. Uh-huh. But when I say something like, I worked at the University of Aberdeen for two years, the majority of people assume I was a lecturer because I said I worked at a university is astonishing. So you have to be very careful when it comes to what is actually being said here and what inferences are coming from what I've said. So I realize I've, I've sort of drifted away slightly from that main theme, which is the research, but data and the context is so important. Well, I, I want to pick up on a couple of things. The first thing is that context is critical. If you do not meet your customer or your uh, audience where they are, chances are that uh, you will end up making some terrible assumptions. Second thing is clarity is key. Ambiguity is the absolute mother of all fuck-ups, mismatched expectations, and disappointment. And Can we please it, have that on a T-shirt? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I found that the times when my friend Amy Woodall says, the cust- your customer's not always right, but when they're wrong, it's often your fault. And so frequently, it's down to lack of clarity. It's down to a failure to, to listen. And in fact, uh, a survey that LinkedIn completed in December 2020 said that the number one thing customers are looking for from salespeople is listening. And it's the thing that no one gets taught. I cannot believe that there are next to no university courses around listening. It's not taught in school, and it's certainly not taught in most sales training curricula. So you have to listen. And that piece that you mentioned about fear of being vulnerable is also very key. One of my favorite customer experience surveys comes from Matthew Sweezy, who wrote a fantastic book called The Context Marketing Revolution. And the whole premise of the book is that in 2010, when the internet really came of age, the context shifted, but the old paradigms continued uh, in terms of how marketers continue to torment their audience. And there's $265 billion a year squandered on pissing off customers with 4.2 quadrillion adverts that are served up every year on Google and Facebook that get one or zero clicks. The average conversion rate on opt-in lists for email is 2.5% open rate. That's not anyone taking any action. Off the back of cold calls, that convert into a second meeting, which is the important one, because getting a meeting is comparatively easy. Having them continue the conversation is more difficult because it means that you have to be relevant and offer value. And the conversion rate of dials to second meeting is 0.03%. Now, when you consider the amount of time, effort, money, and uh, frustration that is associated with digital advertising, email, and cold calling, they deliver next to no value. 
If you ran your finance department in the same half-assed, slipshod manner that you run your marketing and your sales, you would be in jail. You'd be out of business within a week. So if you're listening to this, then pay attention. You need to pay attention to your customer. You need to listen to what they tell you. And Matthew's survey has three questions in it. What got you to this moment? Did this experience meet your expectations? And this is the clincher. Have you seen better? It's an invitation to be vulnerable. It's an invitation to be harmed and hurt and have your ego pricked. But that question is gold. And I urge everybody who's in sales at the end of each meeting with a prospect, ask, how did I do today? Did this meet your uh, expectations and have you seen better? And then sit back and have them school you on how to improve your performance. But too many salespeople are brittle. I think that's a very, very good term. I think bristle, brittle is exactly it. And I think that there is, when you can shut up and listen, not only are you giving your customer what you want, but you're better able to receive feedback. You're better able to receive what it is that they're telling you. And then you can ideally use that because you've listened to it and absorbed it. And you can use that to become better. And I think that's where we have to be vulnerable to listen properly. And I think the two go hand in hand for me. I think that's incredibly important. And I think what's very interesting is that when you start to listen, you suddenly have a much deeper dialogue. One of the issues that I see with Facebook marketing and with adverts across Google is that it doesn't sound like it was written by a human being. You know, the amount of repetitive calls to action that we see on websites, the amount of, um, you know, the sort of jargon, it doesn't sound different. And I, I think, was it Seth? Gordon, you said something along the lines of, if you're not standing out as a marketer, you're basically invisible. And it was something along those lines. And, you know, there's not... You're just noise. You're just noise, exactly. And and it's, it's, it's not even helpful noise. It's just irritating. And the brain is so good at filtering out what it doesn't want to see. There's a really interesting company called Lavender. Um, I think it's trylavender.co.uk.com, maybe. And the founder, Will Allred, is putting human dialogue back into sales discourse and lavender helps it's a i think it's an email it's a smart copywriting email program that helps you sound more human in your emails and i think that's what we're looking for it's what we're lacking in so much discourse and dialogue and certainly in the sales realm definitely otherwise in terms of marketing is that what's written doesn't sound like it was written by humans when you think about i mean everyone remembers the Dettol advert from the tube i think it was perhaps or it was maybe late last year perhaps august and the Dettol advert is worth looking up. And I do feel sorry for whoever wrote it because whoever wrote it has, has been absolutely eviscerated on social media. But the way that it's written, it doesn't sound like anybody's human experience of an office. And it's something like, you know, ooh, the smell of burned coffee beans as you approach the water cooler. It's Deborah's sound from the photocopier. It's just nothing in it sounds like anything anyone can relate to. And yet it was plastered all over the London underground. And the copywriters on Twitter were in arms. We, we you know, we rose up and we, we, you know, our weapons were hashtags and cynicism. But it was just one of those things where you looked at it and you thought, oh, did a human being read that before it went to print? And I think that's one of those issues is that you, People do sometimes think that terrible marketing is better than no marketing because at least it provoked a reaction. But the amount of people that are going to think, oh, fuck off, Dettel. It's not, <laughs> it's not ideal. It's not what you want, really, is it? I love the definition of 
a camel, which is a horse designed by a committee. And <laughs> I think very often that's what happens when you go for consensus and you end up creating the lowest common compromise, which misses the mark. And I think in your writing, in your marketing, you need to be bold because people are being absolutely inundated with worthless content. And there's all this noise. I mean, I try and when I've been driving around uh, London, for example, I try and add up the number of adverts that I'm being hit with. And I always run out after a couple of hundred. But that's by the time I hit Hammersmith Bridge, because every bus, uh, every billboard, every taxi and people's car bumpers, stickers and everything else. And so you must be inundated with 10, 20,000 adverts if you spend a day in town. And so you just become immune to it all. And very little stands out. I mean, I I still remember one advert, which I had uh, ripped out from the newspaper. And I had it on my wall at university. And it was an advert for the post office. And it was a picture of Oliver North swearing in at the Iran-Contra trial. And it said, with a few notable exceptions, no one moves your money around better than us. And it still sticks in my mind. It was a fabulous tagline tied to a great image. And it it stuck with me. I mean, that was 30 years ago, um, depressingly. And it's very rare that advertising nowadays stands out. It's very rare that copy actually captures anyone's attention. So tell me this. What are the three questions people should be asking about writing good copy that they generally don't? Oh, that's such a good question. That's such a good question. And just very quickly to come back to your point about copy being a dying art. I think with the advent and rise of of social media, with the, the sort of shrinking of character count and the shrinking of attention spans, there is less room for really brilliantly crafted copy. And I think less people are promoting it you know we're sort of obsessed with the millennial and the, and the, the gen gen y generations and you know those are the languages of emoji and of tiktok and of you know 120 240 characters so i think the copy the questions that we don't get asked around copy that should be should be asked are is this articulating the benefit to the user is it going to be of interest to them genuinely you know is it written in a way that they want to hear And I think looking at, well, why are you writing it? What is the benefit? And am I writing this in a medium that is going to be well-received by the user? And all too often, we assume that every millennial is on Instagram. Now, that's not necessarily a a wrong generalization, but it might be that your target market actually is a really niche group that prefers Tumblr, or that they would much rather be um, advertised to in a a different way. And we don't think about the context, again, it's, it's that context. We don't think about the context of the communication that we're putting out or the copy that we're putting out. You know, when you're reading a magazine, you can sit back and enjoy the leisure of, of your hopefully something that's brilliantly written by, you know, some excellent journalists. And there were some really well-crafted adverts. I mean, Ogilvy, when they did their Rolls-Royce adverts, um, you know, the loudest thing in the in, in this new model is the, the ticking of the electric clock. And mm. that is just magnificent. And that's when advertising copy 
was really impactful. And you didn't mind being advertised to because the advert was written so intelligently, persuasively. They knew their target market. They knew that the features of this car were going to be appealing to their audience of very rich car buyers. And that was so enticing. You know, it was gentle humor. It was classy. And now we just have lots of shouting or we have hashtags or we have, there's, there's a real lack of I don't want to say finesse, but I think there is a lack of of, of craft, perhaps, um, used in, in advertising copy. Now, there's a lot of probably there's a there's a huge camp out there that says, well, actually, infamy is better than fame, and I'd rather be infamous than famous because even if the press is bad, at least it's still press. And I think that market is changing, but there's you know there are still things that irritate us, like the Go Compare Man or perhaps the meerkats mm-hmm. from Compare the Market. That kind of mascot-focused advertising is very interesting. But it does work. And I think that's what's most galling is that these incredibly irritating things, when you think about insurance, what do you think? You think compare the market, go compare. You know, it's it's a very, I don't want to say frustrating because it isn't frustrating if it works, but it, there is perhaps, there's a change in appetite in what we want from our adverts. And I wonder if we're just a bit too ready to accept crap. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I won't use go compare because of the advert. They piss me off so much. So they've lost me as a customer. Uh, Maybe I'm just too crotchety and old to be bothered. But I get frustrated when people don't put enough time and thought into thinking about the customer. And back in the 50s, every advertising agency on Madison Avenue had an in-house psychologist or at least one. And for some reason, that went out of favor. I remember as a kid, you'd look forward to the adverts. Now, I deliberately record things so that I can scroll through them. There's a particular pizza advert that irritates me because it looks like it's vomiting out jam from the crust. And the jingle irritates me. And I just, as soon as the adverts come on, I just fast forward through it. And I vow that I'll never buy from them. So I don't know whether or not, it, I mean, it must be working. Otherwise, well, I say it must be working. There are an awful lot of corporate uh, acts of stupidity where people double down on stuff that doesn't work. But you know, one of the things that's fascinated me for a long time is the number of marketing CMOs who will go to agencies that have won awards because they're more interested in the awards than actually doing their job, which is selling more shit. And I would rather get somebody who's actually spent time talking to customers, getting them to hand over a check and go to them. And this is one of my big bugbears, the number of marketing people who have never, ever spoken to a customer. And they are so absorbed in meaningless lakes of data. And that then leads to these inhuman bits of copy and advertising. And I look at most corporate marketing on LinkedIn, which is where I spend the bulk of my time. And these ads are product, feature, price, or crowing that somehow they're the world's biggest or best. And you just think, so what? What, Why would you tell me that? So what? And who cares? And I remember doing a project, which they, they never took up. We didn't at any point talk about their product. And they took umbrage at this because they thought that the product needed to be front and center. But 
let me be absolutely clear. No one in the history of humanity has opened up and said, you know, bugger me, what I really want is a router. No one buys your product. No one buys your service. They rent the outcome. And if your copy does not articulate how your product or service will deliver that outcome, then you've missed the, uh, the purpose from the customer's perspective. And no amount of data is going to prove you right. Okay, so given that there is so much noise out there, let's spend a little bit of time talking about the language itself. How do you frame your copy in such a way that it's attractive and compelling? Is there a structure? Are there particular types of language or uh, adjectives or verbs that one should be using that will capture someone's attention early? I think, so classic Galloway's answer, it's going to be different for every company, and it should be. I think the first thing to do is understand, again, that, that value proposition. What are you offering that is going to be beneficial? Start from there and work backwards. And if you don't know what it is that you offer, go and figure it out. The other thing that I thoroughly recommend my clients do is um, we work together in a scoping phase where we look at their website and scrape the data to analyze what language are you using that you're unconscious of. So you might have a brand, for example, that is um, very, very luxurious and or that you want to be luxurious, you want to be seen as premium. But actually on your website, you've used a number of words that indicate accessibility and affordability. Now, neither of these, this is not a bad thing. This is not about being bad or good. But often you, you might be saying one thing and undermining yourself with another. So making sure that there is consistency in what you're putting out is vitally important. The other thing is to make sure you're thinking enough about the other person. And the way that I do that is to gather all, and I recently did a video on this on LinkedIn, but I gather all of the information, all the, all the copy from a particular web page or a set of adverts that you want to focus on and look at the word count. Then you want to do a control F find function for you or your, and look at the percentage of second person pronoun usage in your copy. It can go anywhere. I mean, and I've seen 0.28% minimal, nothing, nothing about the other person. Why would I want to engage with you when all you're doing is telling me about yourself? That's obnoxious. You wouldn't do that in conversation. Or if you would, you would be violating something called crisis maxims, which we can come on to later. But the, the whole point of conversation is there should be an exchange. But if I am talking at you, I need to tell you why that's of value to you. So indicating that you're interested in that other person with an appropriate amount of second person pronoun usage is vital. And that appropriate amount will vary depending on the purpose of your website. Typically, it can run anywhere between 3.5 to 6% or upwards, probably no more than 10. Otherwise, it's just going to sound a bit weird. But that really is what you want to be looking for is, do I have enough of a focus on that person? The other thing to do is think about accessibility. So if your copy, depending on your target market, is that you're selling educational resources to high schoolers, don't put your copy at a college level. Don't do it. It just makes sense. Look look at a reading level checker. Look at a readability checker. These are just really simple, basic things that you can do. And they're all about making sure that you're refining that core value, that message of, of value for the, the intended recipient in a way that makes it easy and quick for them to understand. It's vital. So again, if I think about what you just said, you need to understand the reasons that will tempt your audience and convince them to keep reading and see value in your communication. 
you need to understand where your customer is and the level that you need to pitch your language at so that it resonates with them and you need to make it about them. And you can use tools, as you mentioned, in order to ensure that you've got the right level of second person pronouns in there. And the structure needs to have their gains and their rewards built into it so that it feels compelling and tempting. Is that a fair summary? It's a very good summary. You should be a linguist. And the thing for me is also that 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 flow, that formula, actually stolen from sales copy is a quest formula. And quest is about qualifying, understanding, educating, selling, and then the transition. So if we're looking at it from a sales copy perspective, and ultimately everything to one degree or another is about some kind of sales-focused persuasion. Either you want someone to engage with you, you want someone to respond to your email, you want someone to take out this loan, you want them to buy this. Everything that we're doing is about getting someone to do something, which in the very broadest sense of the word could be described as a sales process. So looking at qualifying why you're uniquely placed to meet whatever need it is that they have, showing them in detail why you understand their problem. So what is the issue that they're going through? And that obviously comes from the research and the context. Educating them on why you are the best the best company, business, service, whatever, to support and meet that need. Then you move them straight into the sale, straight into that. Let's get this sorted now. And I think that's another thing is that, you know, if you've listened well enough to your customer by doing the research, you should be able to tell them everything that they're struggling with. And it should feel like, oh, absolutely, I need that. No, that makes total sense to me. And there are variations on, well, how much copy do you use? And, and, you know, how short or long do you keep it? But by focusing on a series of steps, you make it easy for someone to follow. And if it's easy for them to follow, they're more likely to take that last action. And I think another key component of what you've just described there is that it needs to flow seamlessly. And I think very often the reader is lost because the transitions are too abrupt and you need to test your copy. So again, don't just assume that because you think it's good that it's going to, uh, you know, it's going to have value. So test it with a small segment of your audience and test it with people who will give you honest feedback. Interestingly enough, the research that Salesforce released in December 2020 suggests that by going back to customers who are unhappy and dissatisfied, uh, you can increase your product development cycle by 600% or uh, speed it up. And again, I think far too few organizations and marketers and salespeople and product folk are brave enough to go and speak to the unhappy customer. Your your unhappy customer will tell you the truth. Uh, The mediocre middle will give you pablum. They'll give you, they, they probably don't know why they buy. And my advice when you're doing your research is go to both polar extremes. Go to the raving fans and go to your absolute hostiles and find out what both of them are saying because they'll tell you why they buy and why they don't. And that will give you real clarity. Your thoughts? I think that's perfect. And I think it's a brilliant way to identify your blind spots. We all have them. And by by building that, really your blind spot sits in that the center of that Venn diagram. People who hate you, people who love you. 
So put the two together and figure out exactly where the overlap lies. I think there's there's so much to be said for, as you say, go back into why it broke down in the first place. People are terrified of doing that. You know, oh, well, what if they shout at me? Or what if they tell me to go to hell or any of this stuff? And, and they might do. It's a gamble you have to take. But the important thing to realize is that it's not about you specifically. It's not about you individual salesperson or you individual writer. It's about what it is that you're offering as a service. So yes, completely agree. Absolutely. If you don't understand the gaps in experience and your product that are costing you sales, you're never going to find a way of overcoming them. And unless you can really connect with your audience at a deeply relevant level and understand the why of customer preferences relative to your products or services, then chances are you're not going to be able to improve your marketing And what we forget, I learned this from one of my partners, the Gap in the Matrix. They are an AI company that really has gone out to answer the one question, why do human beings not understand other humans? And the research that they do is utterly breathtaking. I've had them into a couple of my clients and the insight is just fantastic. But the point I want to make here is that human beings' brains are basically biochemical junkies. If you do not understand the neuro rewards that are going to cause people to buy or not buy, and you don't understand how to trigger those, then chances are, and this is why you just get forgotten, is unless you are feeding them the right uh, hormones in the brain, then they're going to associate you either with not being important and irrelevant, uh, or they will associate you with negative feelings. And that's where you get the adrenaline and the cortisol. And this is why a lot of marketing that doesn't work, that puts a lot of people off, um, is exclusively focused on pain. If, on the other hand, you build in a really strong gains architecture and you sequence all of your copy your images, your videos, your gifts in such a way that it feeds the brain dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. Then what will happen is their brain will associate your brand and your products and services with a friend. And when they are at the point where they're moving from consideration to temptation and your sales team contact them, they will have positive associations with your brand. So they become immediately more receptive. And we've seen this on campaigns. These guys did a Black Friday campaign for a a large jewelry manufacturer, and they got a 986% higher than average open rate. And when people got filtered through, they ended up having a 40% purchase rate off an one-day email campaign. Now, this is quite breathtaking. So if you can be bothered to either invest in a service like that or put some thought into the science behind human behavior, and this is really where I think linguistics and psychology really come together. And these guys have put 24 different psychological disciplines together to answer that one question. Why do human beings not understand other human beings? And it's our job as marketers, as salespeople, as, sales, as business leaders 
to put in the heavy lifting and think about why it is we want people to engage and why it will be important for them to respond to our outbound copy, whether it's content, whether it's advertising, whether it's a cold call, whether it's your sales decks. If there is not that thought going into that, then you're just utterly forgettable. I think that's really interesting. Um, And there are two points here that I think are, are very relevant. And one is pain sells, but only in the short term. And there's definitely in terms of the the timing of, of the delivery of those positive hormones, oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, you can see how important it is to put that left, bring it left in the, the life cycle of your copy. So start with those emotions. Then you can bring in pain and exacerbate the issue, but don't start the other way around. Don't discuss a pain point and then necessarily try and redress what it is that you've said. So in my mind, an example is the Burger King International Women's Day lead balloon of a tweet. The first tweet was, women belong in the kitchen. (laughs) The second tweet was, we want to see, we want to empower more women uh, in the the catering and chefing industries and hospitality to get back into uh, workplaces after, you know, a career break or having a child, whatever it is that they were saying. So they basically did a long thread of, of, and here's why women belong in the kitchen. And actually we're all feminists and it's great. But because they had created such a negative um, association in that first tweet, women belong in the kitchen, they were torpedoed on social media. And they had to retract it. They had to do the apology. They had to go through the whole rigmarole of, of the mea culpa. And I think that by leading with such a negative, and it was incredibly negative, tweet, you know, the 180 afterwards was underwhelming. It wasn't underwhelming, but it was the 180 was... Um, it felt inauthentic. Exactly, exactly. It felt like it was performative. And I think that's something that today when people are bombarded with adverts, you can tell which ones have had the thought put into them. Those are the ones that work and the ones that don't. Um, And I think that, you know, looking at the delivery of of positive connections, so coming back to Grice's maxims, which will make sense in a second, I promise. So Grice's maxims are a set of of conversational um, principles that we expect from other people without saying a word. So if I said, hello, Marcus, you would say, hello, Eloise. I'd say, how are you? You would say, I'm fine. How are you? If you just say, I'm fine, and you don't ask me how I am, I'm going to be a little bit pissed off because there's a natural rapport and exchange that needs to happen. And even though it seems incredibly basic and simple, its absence can cause the opposite of the hormones we want to induce. And it's important to look at the language of the copy that you're using in the sense of, what is an expectation or what is expected of this copy that isn't perhaps being addressed, that I am I'm losing before I've even started? And I think we don't do enough analysis on current comms to see where they've broken down and why. And that, to your point earlier, is why it's so vital to go back to the people that hate you, even though it's terrifying, to understand where that blind spot is. Because you might be unconsciously incompetent at something that could be sabotaging you before you've even started. And often it's a very small thing. This is part of the problem because um, if, if you don't have the vulnerability to put yourself in harm's way, you're never going to know. And it could just be that you've said one thing or you've done one thing and you can go back and you can apologize, interestingly enough. And um, you know, there, there is good uh, research on this that um, an unhappy customer who is um, helped to become happy will typically purchase 80 plus percent of the time. 
so there is a naughty argument uh, that occasionally you should mess up so you can go and apologize to drive up sales. It's not something that I'd necessarily advocate. But everybody, when they are making a purchase decision, they're trying to add value in some way, shape or form. And they're looking to create a better future for themselves. They're looking to make the best decisions for themselves. And if you don't understand what that looks like in their mind, then chances are you're going to fall massively short. And this is why one of my big bugbears is the total lack of business acumen that marketing and salespeople generally have. They don't really understand the moving parts in the customer's system, which is their business, their company. Because if you change one part and you don't adjust other parts, chances are you know, the picture will be out of whack. And it's incumbent on all of us to really get to understand the role of our target customer. What are the jobs that they're trying to get done? What's the progress they're trying to make? What are their struggling moments? How do they describe those situations? What do they need? How can we help them get it? Even if we can't deliver it ourselves, who can give it to them? And we we need to really think as the customer, not about them, but as them. So go out and speak to people in those roles that you typically sell to and ask them for 10, 15 minutes advice. I'm new to my role and I'm going to be working with guys just like you. Would you mind explaining to me what it's really like to do your job? What are the jobs you're trying to get done? What are the fires you're having to put out? How you measured? What are the pressures you're under? What kind of fires do you create yourself? Which are thrown uh, at you? What are the implications of you doing a good job or a bad job? And if you don't understand that, go and ask. It doesn't take much. It, it, It really just involves you having enough courage to reach out to people and ask for their help. And you'd be amazed at just how many people will help. Um, I've just conducted a series of about 20 interviews with CXOs with the explicit intent of uncovering answers to those questions. And it's been fascinating. And without exception, and this is a really powerful takeaway, every one of them wants to meet salespeople in the hope that they will leave that conversation smarter. And that means that they don't mind when you challenge them as long as you've done your research and you can evidence it. Looking at that from a pattern interruption perspective as well, we're all looking for things that are going to divert us. We're all looking for information that we can take forward that's going to be really useful. So in that space, you know, challenging is fine. And I think challenging on a sales call can be a really good move because it gets you out of that, yeah, okay, that's your pitch. Yeah, okay, fine, you told me. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'll call you back. And getting people out of that rut, out of that space of, I know all this, I've done all this before. If you can interrupt that assumption, because you've done your research, you're going to forge a much more positive connection with the person that's asking those questions. It just, it's about releasing that, that dopamine hormone. I've had that expectation. Oh, you've changed it to something different. Oh, that's novel. That's fun. Okay, well, let's talk about this now. And I think that, you know, from the, you know, the CXO's perspective, that's the same thing. They are looking to be positively challenged. And I think more of that positive challenge could only be a good thing, surely. There's the flip side, which is what really pisses them off is salespeople turning up and pitching product 
and telling them why they're the greatest and what they already know. That is a total waste of their time. I was speaking to a friend of mine, Mike Allison, who spent his career working in the biomedical space and working with cardiologists and brain surgeons. And when he asked the same question, he said, I hate it. These cardiologists were saying, I hate it when salespeople turn up and they talk to me about their products. I don't care. And I want to be challenged. It's a total waste of my time. And I haven't got the time to talk to salespeople who are trying to pitch me. I need them to challenge the way I'm thinking so that I can get better clinical results, lower the mortality rate, improve the recovery rate. So come and show me evidence and research that proves that. And whether you're selling software, hardware, pharmaceutical products, um, or stationary, if you cannot find the value for that customer, you have no reason to be there. And I think too often we see salespeople who actually don't give a toss about that. They're more focused on closing the sale, making commission, hitting their target, than on delivering real value to the other person. There's a place and time for targets and value, absolutely. But if you can't sell something that's going to make a significant difference to someone, or if your product doesn't meet their needs precisely, go away. If you can't add value, bugger off. You're not helping. You're wasting someone's time to make yourself feel better about your job. Don't do it. This touches on my current hobby horse, which I think is really key. I fundamentally believe that every customer deserves to feel safe whenever they are engaging with a salesperson or a vendor organization. And for that to happen, we need to deliver reliability, relevance, and responsiveness. And if we are not rigorously authentic and move the communication from being closed to open, we don't have really clear core value alignment. So we move from being self-centered to customer-centric. And we don't focus exclusively on the customer's success. So we move away from being transactional sellers to helping them not only achieve their outcomes, but the byproduct is everyone wins because we end up getting a customer in a long-term partnership where we have created strong and sustainable agreements that can weather time and adversity where we are deeply collaborative and co-developing solutions over time so we stay relevant. We're constantly creating value and we communicate with clarity. We're not afraid of entering into constructive conflict and we have the vulnerability to ask when we have messed up, to say when we don't know, to take responsibility when we have screwed up and to invite criticism. But that is significantly lacking. And it's a, I'm on a mission to make all of that the standard within sales. I suspect it's going to have to carry on well past the time I'm pushing up daisies. But I, I think what's happened is over the last 40, 50 years, sales has been diverted from being a service profession to being a self-serving one where the emphasis is on hitting quota, making the sale, and it's being driven by the way organizations are led, the culture of the executive team. And as a point of difference, and in terms of developing your copy, 
what I know from actually using this framework in the real world is it resonates beautifully with customers. And you differentiate in how you sell, how you write, not what you say, not what you write. And it's about understanding the context that the customer is constantly inundated with bad corporate sales pitches that are forgettable vanilla interruption um, at best. And often the salespeople are pushy, aggressive, totally self-serving. And we exist because of the customer, not in spite of them. They're not an inconvenience at the end of a long chain. They are at the heart of everything that we do. So we we need to wrap up shortly. So let's just finish on that theme. When you are writing copy and content, how do you ensure that the customer is front and center by the time you finish? Process. It's always about process. You begin with the customer. You begin with them in mind. What do they need to know from this? Right, that's my anchor. And then I write and I read and I check again at that brief. Have I focused on the customer here? Have I given them a reason to keep reading the next sentence? Have I given them a reason to engage with us at the end? Have I thought fully about the hierarchy of their need as it relates to this particular product? What did they originally sign up for? Am I meeting that expectation? I think to I would love to give you a, a concrete formula that says do X, Y, and Z and you'll get A at the end of it. But actually it's it's less about that and more about making the process of your writing consistently and completely customer focused. It's so important, especially I think especially for B2B. If I'm writing copy for B2B, actually the business I'm writing for. I'm not writing for them. I'm writing for their customer. That's how I serve that other business. So by being consistently customer focused, looking at the, you know, some of the metrics we've discussed previously, um, and really making sure that whatever goes out has the customer's best interests at heart, you can course correct the copy from there. You can go back into the data and look at well, what message resonated and what didn't. But as long as you know that you focused it on the customer, you're getting towards the right place. And I think that's just, that's as you say, it's all about that process. It's all about being a service, not about product. So what I'm extrapolating from this, and I may be wrong, is write the conclusion first and then write the headline that directs you to the conclusion and then write the rest of the copy to deliver that outcome. Well, yes, I suppose that is, yes, you could describe it that way. I think the conclusion is, you know, what is the next best action for the customer to take? So it's, it's what happens after they receive that piece of communication. Do you need them? So it's, it's call to action, yes, but it's also ultimately what do they need to do that's going to serve them best? Is the best thing for them to do from this particular customer to pick up the phone? Fantastic. Personalize it that way. Is it that we give you a call instead? You need to make it as easy as possible for that customer to do business with you. Then obviously you can craft your headlines, make sure that the flow of your copy is seamless, absolutely integrated one piece to the next. And then look at is the messaging on each bit of copy flowing sensibly? Am I articulating the value of what we offer in every single piece here in a way that's relevant to the customer? Because you only have a certain amount of time to capture their attention. But yes, I suppose that's a great way. Look at the the conclusion, work backwards, and the conclusion might not be what you think it is. So make sure that you're checking with those customers. Make sure that you're asking for that feedback. Absolutely. Eloise, this has been really very, very interesting. I'd love to have you back. Oh, thank you. That would be a pleasure. Excellent. Okay, so let's wrap up on a couple of more personal questions. So what what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? 
oh, perfectionism in a nutshell. You know, and it's ironic after this wonderful conversation we've had about being so customer focused and being so <laughs> so focused on the other person that for me to sit here and be like, I am a recovering perfectionist, but I am. And one of the things that I really struggle with is getting my ego out of the way when I'm writing. So yes, I do my customer research. And yes, I go and confirm what it is that I'm doing. But all too often, I assume that first draft needs to come back with, you know, an A plus in a circle and a gold sticky star. And it doesn't. And I'm devastated. So I'm not sure if that was precisely the answer you were looking for. Um, but in terms of what I struggle with is that recovering perfectionism of being vulnerable and asking for that feedback is something that I'm, I'm not particularly good at yet. And I think part of that comes from either wild ego or from imposter syndrome. And ironically, I like to career between the two. So, you know, one day I'll get some great feedback and I'll feel like I'm on top of the world. But the problem is, is that, you know, none of this is static. So I think that sort of developing that thicker skin so I can go out and become better by asking feedback and being vulnerable is something that I, I definitely need to get better at. Have you read Brene Brown's work around perfectionism? I love Brene Brown. I do absolutely love her. She's wonderful. But it's always a good reminder to go back and read her again. So again, more often than not, her research suggests that perfectionism is a byproduct of childhood shaming. So often it works well to go back and look at the source of that because perfection is definitely the enemy of the good. And doing an excellent job is all customers want. They don't want it perfect. So back to my example with the uh, sales guy, I, I want to know that they are not the finished article because anyone who thinks they're the finished article is likely to be not only very brittle, uh, but not open to coaching. Now, in terms of your own perfectionism and that imposter syndrome, it's really interesting when you stop making it about you and you make it about your customer, then the focus is where it should be. And the problem with imposter syndrome is it's all me, 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 me. And I, I've worked with a number of people on this. And when you remind them that the reason you do what you do is to serve the customer's best interest, then the imposter syndrome very quickly disappears. Because when your focus is on serving them and helping them achieve their desired outcomes and making them successful, then your emphasis, all of your effort, your energy and attention is focused on that. And that's perfect. And ironically, love, I absolutely love public speaking, probably just love the sound of my own voice, to be honest. But when I was, I was delivering a, a seminar on public speaking when I worked at the university, and really that was the fundamental message was public speaking is terrifying. Yes, absolutely. If you were giving a eulogy at a funeral, you know, most people would rather be in the coffin than being where you're standing. That's fine. But one of the things to remember is that it's not about you. It should never be about you. And, you know, for all, it's all very well and good that I'm saying this. You know, it's one thing to say it, another to put it into practice. Um, but when you are speaking, when you're delivering a, a, you know, a talk of any kind, make the focus on the customer that safe space for you. Because as you said quite rightly, as long as you are focused on them and what they get from you and on serving, you are completely out of the picture. And isn't that a better way to be, surely? You know, once you're removed, the lens is no longer on you. And that's exactly what should be happening. Absolutely. So let's just wrap up on reading or influences. So 
for people who've listened to the podcast and found it useful, can you suggest some books, audios or videos that they would find useful in terms of improving the quality and intent of their message? Absolutely. So I think the the first thing I would recommend as a humorous read is actually this book right here called Delusions of Brandia. So for everything that was spoken about today regarding the issues with marketing and quick bucks and awards-focused agencies rather than serving that customer, this is by Ryan Woolman, who is um, an Australian marketer, former doctor, bloody funny. It's a really, really excellent book, Delusions of Grandeur. And, uh, and Ryan definitely excoriates, shall we say, that's my word of the day, uh, the marketing industry and makes sure that you are left in, in no doubt as to what you should be doing instead. So if anyone's looking for a lighthearted but hard-hitting read, thoroughly, thoroughly recommend that. The classic that I go back to when I am struggling with the imposter syndrome is always Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffers. And it's a classic yeah. for a reason. And whether or not you believe in the sort of slightly more uh, spiritual side that she gets into, the advice she gives in the first sort of five to six chapters is superb. The other one uh, that I would thoroughly recommend in terms of a TED Talk would be Elizabeth Stocko, who is, I believe, a lecturer at the university or professor actually at the University of Lancaster in their linguistics department. And she does a fantastic breakdown of communication breakdown and what we hear when we talk about conversations and the, the, the roadmap to meaning and understanding. So in terms of anybody looking to make that language toolkit a little bit more conscious, Liz Stocko's talk is 100% the, the one to check out. And then in terms of listening from a podcast perspective, I would always, always recommend Brian Whittington, who does Talent, Sales and Scale. He asks some of the best questions I've ever heard from a podcast host, barring yourself, Marcus, obviously. But uh, but yeah, Brian is, is, is tremendous. Um, he's based out of Pittsburgh, I think, in the States. And he is, he is tremendous at getting to the heart of an issue. So from a sales perspective, thoroughly recommend going and seeing him there. Excellent. Thank you very much. So you've got a golden ticket. You can whisper in the ear of the idiot Eloise, age 23. What choice bit of advice would you give her that she'd have probably have ignored but would have benefited from had she paid heed? That's a wonderful question. And disturbingly, it's actually only six years ago that I was 23. So I feel like I hope I've really learned enough in six years <laughs> to go back and tell my, my younger self to probably stop being a dickhead and to ask more questions of people. So I spent a lot of time when I was younger being terrified of feedback. And I would love to go back to my 23-year-old self and say, park your ego, child, and listen to what these people have to say and ask more questions of them. So don't just wait for people to give you feedback, but go out there and proactively pursue getting better by trying to spot the blind spots that you have through other people's perspectives. That's what I would do. Yeah, I'd probably just give myself two fingers and, and tell myself to jog on. But if I could go back, I think that the, and that maybe this is to, you know, a reminder to myself as we move forward is start asking those questions now, ask more of those questions now, because the more questions you ask, the bigger a picture you can build, the better informed decisions you can make. My friend, Sean Collin, and I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago and the quote of the day was the correct response to criticism is thank you and invite it. If you assume it comes from a position of love, then you're not, you shouldn't be hurt by it. Um, but there, there is value in that. And the one caveat I would have to what you said about asking more questions is really think carefully about the questions that you do ask. 
if you want better answers, ask better questions. And before you meet a customer or a prospect, plan through the kind of questions that you're going to ask so that they are insightful. Um, the best kind of questions deliver insight. The worst kind of questions are housekeeping information gathering questions. And you will switch your prospect off. But if you ask great questions, you will stand apart from all of your competition. And in your copy, don't be afraid to pepper it with some really difficult, gnarly questions that make people prick up their ears and think. I once had a client turn to me after I, I, I'd done such a thing and they said, that's a really evil question. I love it. And, and this is a, a client of mine who we were looking at um, repositioning the, the business that he runs, um, you know, sort of not quite lockdown proofing, but pivoting to a degree. And I had asked this particular question and I wish for the life of me I could remember what it was. But that's a really encouraging response. Someone goes, oh, oh, no, I have to go and think. About, oh, shit. Damn. I hadn't, so, but you can add value as a salesperson even before you close a deal, even before someone starts using your service by forcing someone to think in a slightly different way, by asking, taking the time to construct a question that should be really insightful once it's answered, definitely. Absolutely. And if you've done your research, you would be in a position to ask those better questions. I love it. Excellent. Eloise, how can people get hold of you? I am on LinkedIn. You can search me, Eloise Leeson, or Olim, olimcoms.com. That's O-L-I-M-C-O-M-M-S.com. And other various contact forms and so on are available on the website. Excellent. Eloise Leeson, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you're the owner or CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million mark, and your objective is to grow your business and achieve real sustainable hyper growth so the wings and wheels don't come off and develop highly engaged and highly productive revenue operations staff. So marketing, sales, SDRs, customer success, account growth teams. And you want clients who stick with you year after year, decade after decade, and you create a profitable business, not one that's just growing for the sake of growth, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com. You can contact me via LinkedIn. And if you are interested in any of the concepts that I talked about around buyer safety, we've launched a community, a global community called Sales of Force for Good. And the mission is to remind us why we exist because of not in spite of the customer, to serve and to raise the selling profession and make it an aspirational career choice. If you're interested in getting involved, then please DM me or email me. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.